This, uh, this series, this message in particular, I've been thinking about doing for about a decade. And uh, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, it's kind of some heavy stuff. And so I've kind of just put it off. And originally this morning was going to be about healing from the father wound, the things that, that some of us have experienced from our dads that weren't what we should have had. And, and I realized that that's not true for everybody. I, I, I don't have father wounds. i got a great dad. Um, but I started realizing the different ways that we're hurt by people. And so it kind of expanded into how have we been hurt by people who are supposed to love us and protect us. Spouses, siblings, parents, children, our church. How do we go about living life when the people who have hurt us so badly, who, who very likely have never even apologized, are right there and we run into them? How do we do that? And so this morning what we're really going to end up doing is, is about a month worth of messages all in, all in one. Uh, going to be a lot of verses. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write down the verse, uh, book, chapter, and verse of all of them. We're not going to put them all on the screen and you can go, you can go read them later. But I want to just get started here and, and just show you where I believe that we're really at. I don't ask you to do this very often. But I'm going to ask you this morning if, if you're dealing with pain or heartbreak or you have been struggling with wounds or having been hurt by a parent, by a grandparent, by a spouse, by a child, by a sibling, by a church, would you raise your hand high? So people can see. Now, everybody look around. Look at the hands. You don't have to look at the faces. But seriously, look around. You're not alone. It's real easy to think that you're the only one that's dealing with this and nobody understands. And the fact of the matter is, this kind of wounding stuff is all over the place. You can say, sure, it's a part of life. But you know what? It, it, it really shouldn't have to be. You're not alone in what you're going through. You're, you're not on this island, and it probably feels like an island that is disappointment and hurt and resentment and anger and frustration. Whatever your feelings might be, you're not alone. You're not going through it. You're not the only one that feels it. Maybe it's something that you've been feeling your whole life. You don't know what it is like to live without that pain. But the Bible talks over and over and over about forgiveness and restoration, forgiveness and restoration, transformation, about being a new creation. The Bible talks about it so often. It's why we talk about it around here. So the day isn't about wallowing together in our hurts. It's about acknowledging them and then moving forward or beginning to move forward on the road to forgiveness and restoration, not because the pain is gone, but because we have Jesus and Jesus is bigger than the pain. Now, this morning isn't going to cover all of this. There's no way that it can, but we're going to try for some of it anyway. One of the things you hear a lot about in churches, we very intentionally talk it around, about it around here a lot. We talk in conversation about this place being a family. We say welcome home when people join. We use that kind of language because we want it to be that. We want this to be a family. The family that you're looking at when they're raising your hands, that's your family that's hurting. We want to be a part of a loving and caring family. And so, 
How does that work? Well, some of you were born into a family, great family. They loved you. You had a wonderful childhood. Some of you were adopted into a family and they loved you and you had a wonderful childhood. And then some of you, wherever your family was, whatever they were like, you did not have a good experience as a kid. The idea of the family being a good thing is something that is just completely foreign to you. But here's what I want to start with. No matter the family you grew up in, at its very best, the local church. When the local church, and we're a local church, at our very best, we should serve it as an extended family for all of the people who call it home. At the very least, we should be an extended family. In the local church, we as Christians, we've got expectations of each other just like you have of your family. And a lot of times where the hurt comes from is that we've got those expectations and people don't meet them. And we don't know how to talk about it and we get hurt. And the same thing happens in church. And we've got a right to have expectations in the church just like you do of your family, your friends, your spouse, anybody else who says that they love you. You've got a right to have expectations. However, sometimes those expectations aren't met and relationships get broken and people get hurt. So what do we do in our family? The people who should be able... We should be able to expect and to count on to love us and to protect us. End up being the ones that inflict the most painful wounds of all. Betrayal, deceit, shame, divorce. How do we live and go forward when those wounds are still raw and real, when the people who inflicted them are still around us? That's what we want to talk about today. I heard it said a long time ago that it's hurt people who hurt people. Pretty simple, but pretty true. Those who are hurt, hurt others. It's possible that the person that's hurt you the worst, parent, sibling, spouse, friend, it's possible that in the deepest part of who they are, they just don't know anything but hurt. It doesn't matter. Even if they're trying to be light and fun and to joke, they do it in a way that just hurts because it's all that they know. Now that might give us an, an opportunity, a way, a window to forgive them, but you know what? It doesn't excuse their actions. Who we are, what, whatever was done to us in the past, does not excuse who we are today. See, we were somebody and something happened. And whatever that thing was doesn't excuse who we are, nor should it define who we are becoming. And I can say that because God can and will make all things new, including you. We talked last week about God taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh, that God makes us a new creation, that God can do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. So what do you do when you suffer a major breakdown in a relationship, but the person that you are separated from or that you've got an issue with isn't dead, but is still very much present in your life. What do you do? Because sometimes what happens in relationships, the reason that they break, they break more because of what someone has not done for you than because of what someone has done to you. See, America today, I think, is suffering from two tremendous... I think we've got a whole bunch of problems... But there's two of them right now that are tied really close together on this issue. that We're experiencing somewhere between the second and third generation in our country that is largely being raised without a father present in the home. Kids don't even know who their dad is. 
And what's happening is that young men are growing older, but they're not being taught how to grow up. The second problem is this problem of divorce that's so ever-prevalent in our country. And I think an awful lot of that is because men who have never learned how to be a husband or a father are only passing on to their spouses and children the problems and the dysfunctions they grew up in and they've never grown out of. Grown men who are still children. Now, ladies, I'd love to be able to say this is a guy thing, but you know the fact of the matter is women do it too. Sometimes we just don't grow up. We just play grown up. Fortunately, God can heal that. So we're going to be looking at this today from the perspective of Christian men and women who want to lift up the Bible as the foundation, as the baseline for who we are and how we should live. Now that doesn't mean that everybody out there shares that perspective with you. The people who have hurt you may not care that you're a Christian. They may not care that you believe in the Bible. See, sin is ever-present, and it isn't just non-believers who sin in life and in relationships. It's us. It's you and I, professing Christians, who have been saved by grace, who still fall to sin. It's a people problem. So what does that mean for us? It means that we've got to be very careful about pointing our fingers at other people and pointing out the things that they've done wrong. And we need to be quick to look at ourselves and our own lives and our thoughts and our actions before casting blame on others. Because the easiest thing in the world is to show other people where they're wrong rather than to look into the mirror and see what we need to work on. And remember something, and this isn't easy. That hurt that you might feel from somebody else that thing that someone else did to you that has somehow now become a part of you, there is very likely somebody else out there who's dealing with the same hurt that you gave them because it's what you know. And so rather than pointing our fingers back at someone who caused the problem, we maybe need to take a look at ourselves and say, what are we doing to perpetuate the problem? What is it we might have said or done? So let's begin with the first relationship. One of the very first ones that we have as children, our fathers. Many times throughout the Bible, because that's our baseline now, God refers to Himself in the Bible as our Father. Jesus even called God Father on earth. The trouble is that a lot of men and women do not have a good relationship with their fathers. And to think of God as a divine dad is not only unhelpful, it is downright painful. I've heard from a lot of people, mostly women, who say, I don't go to church because I can't stand to hear about God as my Father as though that's a good thing. Truth is this, God represents the very best of what it is to be a loving, caring, compassionate Father. It's the reason that that term is used. It might not be what you experienced in your childhood, but God is the very best of what a dad can be. We sing a song, God is the good, good Father. God's the one that loves us, the Father who withholds nothing good from us. The Father who wants nothing best from us and who gives us only His very best. Now when the Bible refers to God as Father, it is not to be an issue of gender discrimination. If that's where you want to go, quite frankly, you're reading the wrong book. Back in the day the Bible was written, women didn't have the same place in culture and in marriages that we know women should have today. 
They just didn't. And the fact of the matter is that men, fathers, were not a part of the epidemic of children growing out without growing up without dad at home. They didn't have men that were as violently abusive of their wives and children as some men are today. Fathers were, for the most part, respected and deserving of that respect. But when we talk about God as Father, it's more than just God as a male identity. It's a relational identity. It's a family identity. In fact, the Bible actually says that we can call God Abba. And Abba is a term that children would have never used to talk to their dad because it was too personal. It was too intimate. It was too close. They would have said more like, Mr. Dad or Sir or Father. But God says we can call Him Abba, which means Daddy. It was too intimate in the day for children to actually use to talk to their dad. They didn't have that relationship. But God says, that's what I want you to call me. Because that's how I want you to understand me. Abba is a term of endearment, of love. It is who God wants to be for you. And so in order to be able to understand that, we've got to understand who it is that you are, who God says that you are, not who the world says that you are, not who the people who have hurt you say that you are, but who God says that you are. See, God calls Himself your Father, not just the Father in an impersonal way, but your Father. And He says that you are His precious child. He invites you to call Him Abba. He invites you to call Him Daddy. Daddy who created you, who has chosen you, who has adopted you into His family. Don't understand that? Then try this. Think of the way that a father sees a newborn child for the first time and picks him up and holds that little baby and just the love that just pours out. That's the relationship that God wants you to understand between you and He. That unbridled joy. So much so that in Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty One who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. If your wound is from your earthly father, I'm sorry. Your father shouldn't have hurt you. God gave you to Him so that He could shower you with love and attention and affection. But you need to know that your heavenly Father, your Creator and your Redeemer loves you so much that He rejoices over you. He delights in you. He wants to comfort you and protect you and celebrate you to the extreme that He exalts over who you are. If you've never known that kind of love here on earth from your dad, please hear this and please know that it's true. That is exactly what your Father, God in heaven, wants you to experience from Him. He loves you and He wants to spend all of this life with you as well as all of eternity with you. So let your heavenly Father be to you all that your earthly Father hasn't been. And if it's your mother that you've struggled with, then let God lavish that love on you as well. And how about when the someone that uh, who chose to love and protect us only ends up hurting us? What, what, what do we do about that stuff? How about when that person is your spouse? When it's that very same person who one day stood before you and a bunch of other people and promised and swore to love and to protect 
to honor and to cherish you who vowed to put your needs before their own and your happiness ahead of their own happiness. What happens when that is the person who hurt you and not wasn't the marriage at all that you thought you were getting into? And all you've experienced is pain and heartache and divorce. Is that what God intended for you? No. A life of misery? No. God doesn't want us to go through that kind of pain. So first of all, before we can get a grip on that, let's talk about godly love for a moment. The kind of love that should define a Christian marriage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. This is how God wants husbands and wives to love each other. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, and it isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. simple fact of the matter is, in our world, sometimes that kind of love is just not what occurs between a husband and a wife. And the result is that good people, kind people, Christian people, go through the pain of divorce. So what does we as a church do about that? What do we as a church family do? We never want to see that happen. We'll pray that that doesn't happen. But in this place, we'll counsel you, we'll help you, we'll encourage you, and we will work with you to restore your marriage. But we'll also love you and weep with you and mourn at the death of the relationship of marriage if that ends ends up being what happens. We're not going to encourage divorce around here. But we're also not going to judge or condemn you for the decision to to divorce. We will not judge or condemn or gossip about others who are going through the very real pain of divorce, will we? No, we won't. So what's the goal? What's the ideal in the church for marriage? Colossians 3, 18, 19. People don't always like this one, but here it is, folks. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Sometimes wives don't allow husbands the chance to be the leader in the home and the family that God calls them to be. And sometimes husbands don't love their wives the way they're supposed to without being harsh with them. And when those simple things are transgressed, when we decide to do things our own way, on our own terms, marriage relationships are broken. The details are varied and are far more than what we can cover here today. But in the end, godly marriage is about selfless love and mutual respect. And for the record, I think it's time that the church realized something. I think it's time the church came to grips with something. That's There's a fine line between loving and truth and condemning under the interpretation and the excuse of Scripture. We've got to realize that we live in a broken world full of sin and sadness. And we are a part of it. Someone's come to the point of divorce doesn't need a church telling them how wrong they are. I have not met very many Christian men or women who take divorce lightly. However, I have met a heartbreaking number of church people in a heartbreaking number of churches who only seem to be able to work together to condemn, judge, and shame people for getting divorced. People need us to love them and counsel them 
with godly counsel through the process and not love and judge them through their journey. If restoration of the marriage is possible, then that should be our goal. If it's not, then we will love and mourn and weep and help carry them. We will be godly love to those people because we are their family. What about when the relationship that's broken between you and the church that you once called home and that you once considered to be your family? It's something that over the last eight years I've heard way too much about. One of the worst pains I've ever seen people go through is when someone from their church family is the one that's hurt them. What's even worse is when the church family works together in wounding someone. That's why some of the worst pain that we can ever have is when another Christian is the one that hurts us. Because we rightfully believe that we should be able to expect more from them. We all live with the same Bible as our baseline. We agree, we say, on how to treat each other. We agree on what grace is and how important forgiveness is. So what do we do when it's the church and the people of the church who hurt us? When they're the ones who judge us? when they're the ones who pick out our sin as being worse than their own. Now, first of all, the church is the bride of Christ. It is not Christ. So don't hate God. Don't be angry at God because of what people have done in His house. People are sinners and people are the problem. And if you claim God is your authority for sinful behavior, it does not mean you have God's authority for your sinful behavior. You can use the Bible as a way to talk, about, talk to someone else about their sin, but you can't use the Bible as a way to excuse your own. And that's what happens in the church. We decide that ours isn't as bad as theirs, so we're going to talk about them. More harm has been done in the name of God than in just about anything else by people with no real idea of who God really is. I've been in full-time ministry now for 20 years. And in those 20 years, the only problem that I have ever encountered in the Christian church, the only trouble I've ever had, the only problem I've ever seen in the Christian church in 20 years of full-time ministry is Christians. It isn't God. God is perfect. It isn't the Bible. The Bible is the perfect Word of God. It isn't Jesus. He came to save us, not to condemn us. And it isn't the Holy Spirit because without Him we don't even have faith. The only problem I've ever seen is sin-filled Christians behaving like power-hungry gangsters. And if you've ever experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't take very many to make you feel like you have been completely run over and kicked out and shamed and run out. So how should we respond? Ephesians 4 says, "...with all humility and gentleness." with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You can't control the actions of somebody else, but you can control your own. Be the better example. Be the Christian that leads with love, that seeks unity in the Holy Spirit and peace among other believers and other churches, even and especially when it's difficult. So often our deepest wounds come from people who tell us who they think we are. Not from who we know we are. Everybody in the world has opinions. Most folks are real happy to share them. An awful lot of them are cruel 
Many of them are wrong. This one I have experienced and I know well. But you know what? Your real identity isn't in what they say about you. Your real identity is in Christ. We are who God says we are because He is the one who created us. You know, in Psalm 139, it says that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. In my language, it means you're awesome. Psalm 17, this phrase didn't come from Shakespeare. It didn't come from Taylor Swift. It comes from the Bible. Did you know that you are the apple of God's eye? Did you know that about yourself? Turns out the person next to you is too. What's your truth? What do you believe? Psalm 119 says this. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Is your confidence and hope in God? Do you know that you're not a mistake, that you're not an accident, but in the fact that you are the Lord's treasured possession? If you looked around, and I would encourage you to do that again, please, you're sitting in a room in God's house full of God's treasured possessions. Are you treating people like that? Do you talk to them like that? Do you lift them up and encourage them like that? The folks that you are sitting next to in this room today are the Lord's treasured possessions just like you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ or a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You are a new creation if Jesus is your Savior. And new creations are always under construction. God uses the image then of a house, a home, a family to help us understand His great love for us and our place in His kingdom, how it is that He feels and what it is that we can be. When we talk about church buildings, when we talk about gatherings of Christians, when we say, where is it that we're going to get together and meet? We, we talk about it the same way. What do we call it? What do we call this space that we don't use for anything other than worship? What do we call this space? This is God's house. There's a reason for that. Let's take a look at what God has to say about building a house His way. There's the way that you don't do it, and then there's the way that there is. Proverbs 24, starting in verse 1. Be not envious of evil men or desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. You may have come from a church where that is the normal way that things happen. That is not God's plan. You may have grown up in a house that that was what you experienced every day. That is not God's plan. Verse 3, By wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Do you know what those rooms are filled with? Do you know the blessing that God is talking about? It's people. It's you and me. Wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God and His Word builds God's house and fills it with people, His greatest treasure. Why are we here this morning? Because we keep getting that part right. Not our wisdom, not our knowledge, not our words. It's all God's and about God. And if we keep that straight, God will fill His house with His greatest treasure. And when you look around, you realize this morning that God's house is filled with God's greatest treasure. And I don't care where you grew up or what you were told as a kid. God sees you as His treasure. Yet when we read the Bible, one of the things we see over and over and over, even in the Bible, relationships are broken. All the time. 
The first children born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel because he was greedy and he didn't want to give God what God asked for. So he murdered his brother because his brother's sacrifice was better. Joseph, youngest of a bunch of brothers, gets thrown in a well and sold into slavery and had taken off to a foreign country. And his brothers go back to the dad and they lie to him about what happened, breaking their father's heart because they were jealous of their little brother. King David had a man in his army murdered because David lusted after the man's wife. And over and over and over we hear about human relationships broken by sinful people. But God isn't afraid of dealing with our pride and arrogance and jealousy and greed. God didn't create our treachery, but God deals with it. And He gives us a way to be healed through it. What God did is created us out of love to be loved, to need love, and to be loved. See, what God has this wonderful way of doing is using human brokenness to shine the light on divine hope and healing. That's really all we got if we're going to get any better. And you know, every way that we find to break and to destroy and to crush human relationships, God has already placed before us a heavenly example of what is possible. Let me tell you what I mean. You might have earthly parents who abuse don't love or care for us. Maybe they don't protect us the way that they're supposed to. Maybe they're not present the way that they should be. So God in His Word says, you know what? I'm going to be your Heavenly Father. Friends treat us poorly, betray us, and a host of other things that the Bible addresses it in John 15 so that Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Jesus says, but I call you friends. Do you realize that? Jesus calls you His friend. So whatever your parents were, God is your heavenly Father. Whatever you've got for friends out there, Jesus calls Him your friend. And there's a mess that we make of marriage as humans. See, God is the one that created us to be in relationships. And God is the one who brought together husband and wife. And we decided to change it completely, upside down. We hurt each other. We mistreat don't love the way we're supposed to. We don't follow the example of Scripture, what it says about caring and loving husbands and wives. You know what God did? God decides to call the church the bride of Christ. And He calls Jesus the groom. That's the way a marriage should look. Bride of Christ, just like a human marriage, is filled with sinful people. And yet here we are. God says, here's what marriage can look like. And we read about the family of God and about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it goes on and on and on. And there's something that God wants us to understand there. So your birth family might have been a nightmare. Family you grew up in might have been a total wreck. But God in His love and His mercy, man, He's given you a home. It's called the church. It's a family that surrounds you a bunch of imperfect, sinful people to be love and to be family for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And then He declares Himself to be our loving Father. And if you look around, what you're surrounded by is the church, the bride of Christ, your family. And we need to take care of our family. Your parents, your spouse, your lost friend, 
You know, they may not have anything within them to be anything other than cruel or weak. Maybe because they just don't know how to be anything else. It doesn't excuse bad behavior. But you know, it's possible they just don't have the tools to be a good person. Whether they call themselves a Christian or not, they may have never truly surrendered themselves to Jesus and they may not yet be a new creation. See, we're not the ones that change us. Jesus changes us on His time, in His way. The Holy Spirit works change in us, not because we say it's time, but because He determines the time. I hear over and over and over again that people give the reason that they don't believe in God is because there's terrible people in the world and there's evil. Too much pain. Well, i got some tough words for that argument. God didn't create evil. God gave us the free will to choose evil. We create evil. We inflict evil. People do. Christians do. Don't be upset with God because of what someone else has done to you. Be grateful that in God's grace and mercy, those evil people do not have the last word on you. Jesus, through His death and resurrection, bought and paid for the last word. And in Him, that word is forgiveness. And that forgiveness leads to salvation. And salvation leads to eternal life. Some people choose to live their whole life in the pain of their past. Whatever has happened to you, however wrong or painful it has been, it does not have to define who you are or who you'll be in the future. Your pain may be part of your past, but God's healing can help you redefine and reclaim your future. Your life, every day of the rest of your life, does not need to be a repeat of the past. Your past hurt can be redeemed and redefined by the love of God if you let Him. It all begins by accepting the free gift of forgiveness offered in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then extending that gift of forgiveness to those who have hurt you. If not for them, then please for you. Because in that forgiveness is the beginning of your healing. Whether it's your mom or dad, whether it's an ex-spouse or a current spouse, whether it's a sibling, a friend, or a former church and a bunch of people there. Forgiveness is the beginning of your healing. The old comedian Buddy Hackett used to say that he never held a grudge. He said it wasn't worth it. Because when he's at home grumpy doing nothing but hanging on to his grudge, the other guy was out dancing. Forgiveness keeps you from staying at home nursing a grudge. Forgive, receive forgiveness, and reclaim your future in Christ outside the pain of the offense that all those who might have been supposed to love and protect you did to you because Jesus will always love and protect you and He'll never leave you. See, God loves you. Your Heavenly Father loves you and He's given His Son to die for you. And His Son calls you a friend. And God's given us a church family and our church family here, it's beautiful and it's fragile. But you know what? We're the ones. We are the ones who are called to protect what God has given us. We don't need to protect our building. We need to protect what this building houses. The family that meets here. It's up to us to protect and to love. Not to judge and condemn and gossip about and shame family. This place is beautiful and it's fragile because you're beautiful. You're fragile.
God has called all of us to protect that. That's why we get to be family. That's why God says that one day we're going to be the bride of Christ, worthy of the groom. Let's pray. God, these hurts go so deep. We stuff them and we hide them and we try to pretend that they're not there, but they're real. And they hurt. And sometimes, God, the deepest, most painful hurts don't even come from parents. They don't come from friends, not even from spouses. The deepest hurts come from the people who claim to believe the same thing that we do, our church family, other Christians. God, I would ask this morning that You would work in each one of us that we not be that kind of a church. That we be the kind of a church that loves each other, that is honest with each other, that protects each other, that is truthful with each other. God, help us to be the kind of Christians that we read about in Your Word the ones who understand love because we understand You. The kind who are working to build the body of Christ to be ready for the day that the groom comes back. God, thank You for this family. Thank You for these beautiful, fragile people. And thank You for Your Son that holds us all together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Henry Nouwen said, Nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can I hide my wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness to the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Next week we're going to take a look at the, as we wrap up this series on how is it that God can use what you've gone through, your pain, your suffering, the brokenness that you've experienced, and as God has begun to heal you, how can God use you to help heal others?